And I'm Lindsay. And this week we're going to bring you Dames of Philosophy. And I'm raising my glass of uh, Baltica to Simone de Beauvoir, nicknamed the Beaver, who is probably best known as a feminist, though she is equally, if not more important for her role as a leading existentialist philosopher. I'm raising my low and brow to Hannah Arendt, one of the 20th century's leading political philosophers. Okay, I'll begin. So Simone de Beauvoir was born on January 9th, 1908, at four in the morning in Paris, in the first book of her four-book autobiography called Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter. Beauvoir described her own rashness and her convulsions of rage, which she was especially prone to as a child, saying, I seem to be confronted everywhere by force, never by necessity. The arbitrary nature of the orders and prohibitions of adults against which I beat unavailing fists was to my mind proof of their inconsistency. So out of frustration of no other way to communicate, She'd fly into these rages, and she said that um, her violence made people nervous, and her father would often point to her as a little girl and say, this child is unsociable. But her parents also recognized their daughter's brilliance, and Beauvoir was always a smidge proud of the fact that her father would describe her as having the brain of an extremely intelligent man. So she would grow up to become one of the greatest literary figures of the 20th century, and also a great philosopher. Although it's taken her a while to be fully recognized as such, and she in fact never called herself a philosopher, something she has in common with Arendt. So translators have pointed out that one reason for her not being considered a serious philosopher in the English-speaking world was probably to do with bad translations. In the original French, her use of philosophical terms and concepts was blatant, but for a long time it wasn't so blatant in the bad English translations. However, unfortunately, there are newer and more accurate translations of Beauvoir's works that are now available. Another huge reason for her not being considered a philosopher is partly because, again, she didn't recognize herself as a philosopher and because she'd made herself a literary woman by writing philosophically metaphysical and metaphysically in a philosophical sense, not a paranormal sense. So metaphysical novels and also because her philosophy was for a long time seen as being just an echo of the philosophy done by her famous lifetime lover and soulmate, the great existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. Beauvoir had definitely developed a strong and powerful philosophy of her own, which contained insights that are unique to her, uh, even if she herself didn't recognize this, especially in the realm of feminist and existentialist philosophy, like I mentioned. She didn't, however, identify herself as a feminist at all until 1972, and she even thought that the defiant attitude of the American feminists was proof that they were haunted by the sense of their own femininity, which could include a physical fragility that violated their illusion of being equal to men in every way. So she was actually more of an existentialist, a Marxist, a phenomenologist, and novelist for most of her life, more than she was a bona fide feminist, even though this is what she's come to be famous for. Beauvoir was the youngest to pass the aggregation. <laughs> I'm not really good at the French. And it, this is the test required to teach in philosophy at the Sorbonne. And she became the youngest philosopher te philosophy teacher in France at the age of just 21. Uh, in her autobiography, she explains why she thought she became an intellectual, saying, and I quote, In my own case, my father's individualism and pagan ethical standards, uh, her father was an atheist, were in complete contrast to the rigidly moral conventionalism of my mother's teaching. And her mama was a devout Christian. Um, this imbalance is the main reason why I became an intellectual. And she stopped believing in God as a young teenager and began questioning the nature of existence at the age of 18. 
she found in philosophy that the same problems that bothered her as a child were being treated seriously by philosophers, and in her words, she says, After 12 years of dreary dogmatism, I found a discipline which asked questions and asked them of me. Her father had a sketchy place in society and eventually lost his money, so she and her sister didn't have dowries. And Beauvoir was basically told by her parents that she had to choose a profession because she didn't have enough money for her to marry. And Beauvoir was like, sweet, because this just meant that she would have independence and a profession of her own, which was at that time quite rare for young women. So while she was a philosophy teacher, though, she initiated sexual relationships with some of her students, uh, which has led to one of the more irritating debates about Beauvoir, I think, over whether she had what is called ephibophilia which is a new word for me. It's an adult's preference for mid to late adolescence, approximately between the ages of 15 and 19. Um, she was suspended from her teaching job in 1943 for supposedly seducing her 17-year-old student in 1939. And she petitioned later in her life for the abolition of all age consent laws in France. <laughs> and Beauvoir's metaphysical novel called She Came to Stay was actually inspired by her and Sartre's three-way relationship with another one of her students called Olga, who was this kind of impetuous and spirited young woman with whom Beauvoir and Sartre had an intense and rather turbulent relationship with when they themselves were in their early 30s, both working and becoming a little bored with the mundanity and the con conventionality of both like adulthood and the other adults they had to be around, which is kind of understandable. But so when she wrote Came to Say, she also spoke of wanting to write about free and unpredictable decisions, especially as regards our relationships with others. It's an interesting read. Beauvoir met Sartre while they were both quite young, in their early 20s, attending university at the Ecole Normale. Normal. She and Sartre and their friends definitely did. They sat around at cafes smoking cigarettes and, yes, talking about existentialism. <laughs> but to be fair, they were the ones who developed French existentialism, so this is where we get the stereotype from. <laughs> but the stereotype of the doomed and somber existentialist can't really be applied to her and Sartre. They were really quite cheerful people and... For Beauvoir, the most difficult thing about existing was the realization that the happiness of existence would have to end at one point. But existentialism is basically the idea that philosophical thinking begins with the thinking, feeling, and acting individual. So the individual's experience is hugely important for an existentialist. And the first principle of existentialism is that we choose our own ethics and make our own meaning. And this is weaved throughout Beauvoir's philosophy. For Sartre and Beauvoir's existentialism, it's inauthentic to submit passively to established values. And mostly um, in this way, ex existentialism tries to be more concrete um, than traditional academic and analytic and consequently much more abstract philosophy. Both Beauvoir and Sartre thought that true philosophy doesn't have just dry discourses on abstract themes, but true philosophy takes risks and makes commitments. An existentialist usually begins from the point of being totally confused and disoriented in an absurd and apparently meaningless world, leading an equally absurd existence, though. So this is kind of where we get the doomed and somber part. But some philosophers who anticipated the existentialist movement in thought were um, Soren Kierkegaard and Friedrich Nietzsche. So Simone was nicknamed 
the beaver, both because her name sounded like the English word beaver, and because she was dil diligent like a beaver. Sartre and her developed and grew together throughout their lives from their early 20s, and Simone knew from very early on that she had found a person with whom she'd be able to share every secret and thought she ever had with for her whole life, and she was right, because Sartre and her stayed together for 35 years until Sartre's death in April 1980. But so the claim that she was merely an echo of his in philosophy might as well be made for him, since she had had just as much of an influence in shaping his ideas as he did hers. Because uh, when you read her journals about her life, you see that she and Sartre had an extremely intimate, cerebral relationship that was rooted in discourse and ideas. In fact, Simone was the one who'd recommended he write his ideas in a more narrative form. And so people have talked about how Sartre's first novel, Nausea, uh, which is this book about this researcher who comes to realize just how meaningless his existence is to inanimate objects and who becomes so aware of his own freedom and existence in the world that it nauseates him. So she basically gives him the idea to put all of these ideas into a story, into literature. Um, so this book probably wouldn't have even come about if it weren't for Simone's influence. Of course, Beauvoir gives Sartre a great deal of credit for her own intel intellectual growth, and she repetitively kind of does this throughout her autobiographies, and she casts him as her intellectual superior. And he was the one who suggested she write her experiences of the world, which she did in her autobiography, and then other novels of hers, and maybe I'm stating the obvious here, I don't think we can go so far as some people I've read have gone by saying that Simone's work in philosophy is somehow less authentically hers, or less self-governing, just because her loved one acted as a sounding board throughout its development. Oh yeah, that's yes. absurd. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if two people are both intellectuals and both philosophers, and they bounce, why wouldn't they be bouncing ideas off of each other the whole time? Um, exactly. Obviously, one person will be influencing the other, but we don't... I mean, no one would ever say that Mary Shelley influenced Percy Shelley's work, but everyone said it the other way around. Mm-hmm, exactly. We would <laughs> never dream of, of taking this kind of critical approach with a male philosopher. You know, Pythagoras, uh, his wife was really involved in mathematics, but we don't attribute his wife with Pythagorean's philosophy and work in mathematics. The second sex is her big philosophical study of woman. And she began writing uh, it in 1946, just a little, like a little over a year after French women had just won the right to vote. Um, and it inspired... A, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and at this point, countries like Switzerland still hadn't won the right to vote. So it was, it was a really inspirational work for the feminist movements going on at the time, even more than I think... Beauvoir anticipated it was going to be because again she didn't identify herself as a feminist when she wrote this and the Vatican placed it on its list of forbidden books though and the wife of Beauvoir's American publisher thought at first when she heard about it that it was a sex manual <laughs> and in general the book was considered to be really sexually scandalous by the first wave feminists so there was a small movement of feminists who really appreciated it there was another movement of the first wave feminists particularly in America who really thought it was scandalous. And it wasn't until the second wave feminists actually kind of saw what it was, which was basically just a political indictment of patriarchy, an account of the meaning of woman and femininity. Um, it's also a phenomenological account. So phenomenology, which I guess will be useful to know about for your lady also, uh, is the type of philosophy that emphasizes the study of conscious experience. It was founded by the German philosopher Edmund Husserl in the early 20th century, and Beauvoir really dug Husserl, um, Hegel, and all of these phenomenological philosophers. Largely ended up being German, which is 
interesting um, considering she lived through World War II and she was really influenced by these German philosophers, had an interesting relationship with Germany in general throughout her life, played a big part. But so she gave phenomenology her own mark within her own system of ethics and freedom in her proper, properly existential way of doing philosophy. And Beauvoir wrote in her autobiography that ever since Sartre and I met, I had shuffled off the responsibility for justifying my existence onto him. This personal struggle is illuminated kind of as a common struggle that's shared by all women in The Second Sex. And I think this maybe is why The Second Sex is such a relatable book. Um, in her introduction to The Second Sex, she introduces her idea of woman as other, probably her most famous idea. And she writes... And she is simply what man decrees. Thus, she is called the sex, by which is meant that she appears essentially to the male as a sexual being. She is defined and differentiated with reference to man, and not he with reference to her. He is the subject. He is the absolute. She is the other. She explains that constructing dualities of this kind is completely natural, though, and in fact the word she uses is primordial. And it's not exclusive to dividing the sexes. For example, the god and Satan, or the good-evil duality. She also sees the idea of otherness as central to human thought. And in her analysis in the second sex, um, in society, woman is the other and not the subject in general. And this is kind of this is a thread she takes from Hegel, um, another phenomenologist, German philosopher. And Hegel had this master-slave relationship that he talked about, where the master is kind of the equivalent of the subject, and the slave is the equivalent to the ob object or other. Uh, she talks, again, in her autobiography about the other, and refers to Hegel's idea that achieving self-awareness requires destroying the other. In her introduction to the second sex, she wrote, I quote, that no group ever sets itself up as the one without at once setting up the other over against itself, and cites Hegel's idea that consciousness itself possesses a fundamental hostility toward every other consciousness. She said, the subject can be posed only in being opposed. So men achieve self-awareness as the subject, which requires the degradation of the woman who must be made other. So, kind of a dilemma. But, of course, uplifting. if a woman wants... What? Is that uplifting? <laughs> yeah. Um, so if the woman wants to achieve self-awareness, this mechanism is the same, right? So she's going to have to um, degrade the man or in any relationship. And how do you get out of this? Like, especially with her own life, Beauvoir obviously loved Sartre a great deal, but there seemed to be this <laughs> looming question of how she would achieve her own self-awareness and make herself the subject without destroying or subjecting her other, which was Sartre, or any other person in her life. So it was, I don't know. And normally I would be quite hesitant to analyze this work through, their bi through her biography, um, so for philosophers. But existentialists, and in Simone's case, um, they were constantly conducting their analysis analyses of their ideas in relation to their own experiences and relationships. And so it's kind of natural with them. The struggle that she had in trying to reconcile her philosophy with romantic relationship is related to this really important. And I think she's more admirable and the existentialists are more admirable, but she was because in her life, she really tried to exercise her ideas and inhabit, inhabit them and live them out. And the result was kind of depressing. She, I mean, her and Sartre loved each other. They had a really 
you know, they had longevity, but it was, wasn't a traditional relationship and involved a lot of heartache because Sartre was quite forthright about his philandering. And then she would try to remain really reasonable because their relationship was this sort of experiment and she felt she had to be quite rational about it. It was, nah, That doesn't always go together. <laughs> you tell yourself that you have to be rational about something, then you, you already know that you probably aren't feeling very good about what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, okay, an interesting thing that Beauvoir points out in another of her autobiographies is that she, though she loved men previous to Sartre, she'd, all, she'd almost married one. Um, Sartre was the one she needed. She didn't even really love him at first. She was like, I love this other guy, but I need Sartre. And she recognized that she needed Sartre um, for the intellectual relationship that she had with him. And so though they never married, she was on, on the point of marrying this other dude, which would have destroyed... I don't know if she would have become what she was intellectually. She would have probably lived out a quite conventional relationship struggling as the other. So she broke up with him. So Beauvoir recognizes that there's this biological dichotomy between male and female, so that there's this conflict that's going to be essential in male and female relationships. She was quite aware of this, which isn't, you know, sometimes I think people try and glaze over this conflict and they try to smooth everything out between men and women in relationships. And she thought this was ridiculous. She knew that conflict was always going to be present. There was no way of smoothing it out because there were these dualities that existed and there was, there were differences. Um, so, um, but what does it mean to be the other? And kind of an important question and whether or not there's a problem with being the other, especially when you, when she, in the second sex, when she's talking about, um, the meaning of what it is to be a woman. And, this is where her existentialist ethics come in. Um, so according to her ethics, happiness consists in being the subject rather than being the other. And she disagrees with the assumption that being at rest amounts to happiness. So usually women, when they become the other, you know, maybe the man takes care of them and they say, oh, but I'm at rest, therefore I'm happy. And she's like, that bullshit, that's not happiness. Her idea of happiness in ed her existentialist system is... Um, she wrote, every subject plays his part to achieve liberty only through a continual reaching out toward other liberties. And there is no justification for present existence other than its expansion into an indefinitely open future. So anyone who's just content with being the other and being subjected by the subject is in violation of Beauvoir's existential and phenomenological moral system because they're sidestepping the responsibility of their freedom by choosing to submit to the authority of other people. So everyone's responsible for their own meaning making. So um, this is one of Beauvoir's most important philosophical contributions. It's called situated freedom. And this idea, situated freedom, has, has become part of the philosophical lexicon. And it's the idea that our capacity for our own meaning making is constrained, but never totally determined by the conditions of our situation. So she kind of she gives this idea a little, this is before her experiences in World War II, but she's a leader in the development of this kind of existentialist thinking. So basically we do have freedom and to say we don't is bullshit. And also, and even more interesting is this idea that to simply leave one's life to chance or leave one's existence in the hands of others is in itself a refusal to live. So this is part of her system. This part of her system is a widening of Kierkegaard, who's 
one of the fathers, I just said, I think he's the father of existentialism. Um, this idea that the individual is solely responsible for giving their life meaning, which is a really liberating idea that you have, you do have a choice. You can choose to have a shit life or you can choose to step up and do something else and give your life your own meaning. Beauvoir in her earlier philosophy had this idea of radical freedom, which she talks about in her early essay called Paris Insinius, uh, where she says that we are fundamentally immune also to another's power. We always have this inherent freedom, and we're always immune on the most basic level to another person's power. So this is an idea of radical freedom, where a person is saved from, ends up being saved from the problems of intimacy and dehumanization, because their inner freedom can never be violated, but this also works the other way. So I can't fight for someone else's freedom. In this situated freedom idea, she recognizes that, okay, the responsibility in this comes in and that a person cannot affect someone's inner freedom, okay, but their actions can produce the conditions within, within which the other person acts. And ultimately, a person's actions towards other people can influence their own inner freedom, right? So it can fuck up your own freedom and you can end up constraining your own freedom by your behaviors towards other people. So you do have this fundamental responsibility. It's in your best interest to think about your actions. In The Ethics of Ambiguity, which is her other book, which she wrote before The Second Sex, and it's a little bit more abstract than The Second Sex, um, she draws on Hegel's idea again. She read Hegel uh, while she was in Nazi-occupied Paris. She didn't understand a lick of what he said for, like, the first month or two that she was reading him. She would just go and sit in the library and be like, I have no fucking clue what Hegel's talking about again. And <laughs> she slowly had to work on it, and he ends up kind of being integral to her own system eventually. So she draws on his ideas which attempted to resolve the inequalities of the master-slave relationship through this mutual recognition of the other's freedom. And Beauvoir reaches the conclusion that in the duality of the sexes, the subject, in this case the man, is ultimately as dependent on the other, the woman, and as the other is dependent upon the subject, but the other is obvious it's much more obvious that the other is dependent on the subject right but ultimately the other is necessary to the subject and she writes as radically free i do need the other so did she consider herself a subject by the end of her life or did she still think of herself as an other i think this is a probably a question people have talked about constantly with her and start I would say that the when you read about how she was dating this other man, and this the, this is why I think that when she says, I love this other man, but I, I needed Sartre, it was kind of really telling that she kind of just had this um, this, this foreknowledge of her own, like, future and, and where she wanted to go. And, okay, I could, I could pursue love with this other man. Of course, she loved Sartre. But when she first met him, she was in love with another man. But she knew she needed Sartre. And they had this intellectual connection. So I, I think that Sartre kind of helped her become the subject. So in this way, maybe they, they, they figured out a, a kind of a relationship that did fit all of her ideas about relationships. They worked something out. Basically just, I guess, don't f find a partner that doesn't make you feel like an alien to yourself. And let uh, find a partner who lets you pursue your, pro your own projects and who lets you make your own meaning rather than trying to give you um, so she your was, identity. So she wasn't saying that all relationships inherently have a subject in another. She was saying that um, the, 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 there is a conflict 
mm-hmm. that you do have this push and pull. So her and Sartre didn't have like a smooth relationship, right? So they had a, they were, she would describe their relationship as them being really great work partners. Like they would just, they would work together. <laughs> the Ethics of Ambiguity was published in 1947 and is said to be the most important introduction to French existentialist philosophy because it smooths out some of the wrinkles in French, French existentialism that even Sartre's book, Being a Nothingness, was a little too abstract to clear up even. Uh, in her autobiography called The Prime of Life, you can see Beauvoir beginning to change her attitudes, though, and change her philosophy. And she focuses less on her own happiness and pleasure and feels like she needs to really take a stand at, in the face of the beginning of World War II. And all throughout, um, leading up to World War II, she was kind of in denial that it was even happening. She was, she admits, I was an, uh, a, a leftist <laughs> intellectual bourgeoisie, uh, and I, she was really naive. She hadn't really opened up her eyes to the nature of what was going on in Europe. You know, this is like after the Enlightenment, like how could this happen? I think this is why she really starts talking about um, the nature of evil later on and how, because she was so naive to it. She didn't really think that... Um, she was She was also really disillusioned by Stalin and the Soviet Union and how they behaved in the war because she was a Marxist and she had this really idealized view of the Soviet Union from afar. But, yeah, that okay. act through a lot of people for a loop. <laughs> Yeah. No, it turned out to completely not be for real at all. Mm-hmm. hmm <laughs> Including Stalin. Threw him for a loop, too. So, so she was living in Paris while the Nazis occupied it, and so right after, this, inf- this is when she wrote The Ethics of a- Ambiguity, like, with this, charged with all this new meaning and purpose from her experiences of living in Paris during World War II. And so in this book, she counters the idea that she had made before. She kind of backpedals on her idea of radical and invulnerable freedom. Kierkegaard's idea on this and her idea of situated freedom kind of... And she recognizes that a person actually can be alienated from their freedom mm-hmm. by existential things, factors like absurdity and boredom and, and angst. Because she was at... She experienced all of these at one point during the war... And she was, for the first time in her life, kind of thrown for a loop. She was a really independent, like, quite sure of herself up until her early 30s. And then the war came along, and um, Sartre was sent to the front. She was alone. People were dying, and she was fucking stuck in Paris. Her beautiful Paris that she sat there and talked about existentialism at the cafes (laughs) in was suddenly occupied by fucking Nazis. She writes in her Ethics of Ambiguity that our consciousness is ambiguous and that we will never be able to stamp our meaning onto the world, which kind of sounds more depressing than it is, but basically Beauvoir thinks that clinging to absolutes in our ethical systems is dangerously misleading, um, which she, you could see in you know, all these people in World War II clinging to absolutes of nationalism and systems that had all these absolutes in them that end up... Ultimately, you know, that ultimately you could be very evil and and causing so much destruction just by clinging to these um, ideas uh, dogmatically. And uh, in her autobiography, she wrote of her experience of this, her time with the absolutes. (laughs) Her time with the absolutes. Oh, my God. (laughs) We have to. (laughs) Why not? I just imagine, like, someone sitting there with all these outs surrounded by absolutes. Like, eh? 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 How you doing? Like... There was a lot of that going around back then. Yeah. <laughs> afterwards. Which absolute... Like, 
<laughs> Which absolute will I choose? Like, I'll, I'll be absolute. <laughs> all the absolute, absolutes just up and left. Yeah. They all okay. get a really important phone call and had to leave. <laughs> okay. Alright, so she wrote, um, it's early. Um, it's okay. <laughs> okay, she wrote, uh, I had longed for the absolute too much and suffered too acutely from its absence. That futile drive towards being, which is infinitely repetitive, consuming one's entire life, exclamation point. So, instead, Beauvoir thinks we should stop striving towards these absolutes and pursue projects that recognize our limits and um, our limits for impressing our meaning onto the world around us. Um, and in philosophy, this is called ethics of existential hope. So we don't actually have as big of an effect um, or are we are not as important for the universe as we think we are and we need to recognize this. Um, which is a pretty, it's quite down to earth. It's, I think it's a really down to earth philosophy and kind of refreshing and totally useful if you're trying to live day to day. In The Ethics of Ambiguity, Beauvoir's existentialism basically asserts that the truth of our freedom is a truth with actually a rather bright logic that implies both responsibility and reciprocity, which negates the horribleness of a world that seems to be ruled by power only. So ultimately we're responsible in freedom and act she actually criticizes Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor character, Ivan, who famously said, if God is dead, everything is permitted. So for Beauvoir, it's precisely because God is dead that we are totally responsible, since there's nobody to pardon us. She also thought that existentialism was the only answer for the people of the time, because it was the only system that took the question of evil seriously. Ah, fought a lot on evil. Alright, once again, our ladies have something in common. Wait, how did she take evil seriously? Who doesn't ah, take evil I'm seriously? Well, actually, I think Beauvoir this is a good question because Beauvoir and Sartre thought that people weren't taking evil seriously. Obviously, someone wasn't taking evil seriously because <laughs> the Nazis were in Paris, right? And they were killing Jews. Beauvoir and Sartre, they were confronted with the terror and the torture and the evil while living in France and Paris. And, and in Sartre's case, he, you know, he was at the front in the French military. He was... He was like a weatherman of some sort, but nevertheless, he was at the he front. He was a weatherman? He was what? like, yeah, he would do like, um, weather experiments, not experiments, but yeah, he was the guy who would like forecast the weather. Like, he, the he was, what? Who the hell wants to hire an existentialist weatherman? I mean, he would, he, yeah, he did like weather balloons and shit, I think. So he would go and like do his little calculations and then, I mean, he was with it. You'll all be dead soon. Okay. <laughs> have you ever have you ever seen Sartre? A picture of him? Uh, I mean, how oh, he's this like mealy like tiny dude who wore these like big like Coke bottle glasses. Oh, he was he was kind of a, he's kind of adorable. <laughs> but he's he's pretty small. Beauvoir actually kind of towered over him. Oh wow, um, he's really funny looking. Yeah. <laughs> and um Here's, okay, so they took evil seriously. One of the prevailing bourgeoisie, especially belief, beliefs, attributed evil to either ignorance or a lack of education or a proper upbringing, right? And they were like, oh, this is how you make bad people. We make bad people. It's not something that's, it, that actually exists and that we're born with, right? 
So Beauvoir and Sartre totally disagreed with this. They were like, obviously, this isn't the case. Obviously, evil does exist because look at all these Germans. This is this is after the Enlightenment. These are Germans who are educated. They're well brought up, and they still fell in for something like Nazism. Ultimate. So both of their experiences really just showed them that fucking evil exists. It's part of our nature, regardless of our education or our upbringing. So. When Beauvoir and Sartre take the question of evil seriously in this way, it's because they're really also asking and reformulating the answer to the question of what it means to be a human being. It means that we have to deal with evil from the get-go. It's part of us. And for French existentialists, the essence of freedom is our ability to make authentic choices. And I think Beauvoir's and Hegel's analysis, which declares the essential necessity of the other for a slave or the subject for master gives us an explanation of how or why we should choose to not be evil and choose to say no to evil when faced with it. We can, we can make this choice. We can recognize evil and say no. And, um, because really if, if it's all up to education, then right, just like, um, the Nazis, you can be brought up well, but you're brought up well to be a Nazi. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. So you're brought up to be evil. So we've missed something, right? And World War II showed Beauvoir that a person must take a stand. You can't stand on the sidelines. And, and actually, her and Sartre became hugely famous and important figures at the end of World War II for their work in developing existentialism and taking evil seriously um, for France. And this had a lot to do with, at the time, intellectuals were being were held in very high regard um, since France was kind of at a point, um, and Europe was at a point where they needed to be rethinking these ideas. And um, a lot of the way that they were doing things after World War II. So later in life, in the 1970s, Beauvoir became involved in the French women's liberation movement and signed the Manifesto of the 343 in 1971. Simone wrote the text of the manifesto herself, and the rest was this list of famous women who'd all claimed to have had an abortion, um, which is pretty scandalous. And though there's some debate over whether a lot of these famous women actually had one or not, um... (laughs) Uh, but it was later referred to kind of cheekily uh, by the opponents as the manifesto of the 343 sluts. <laughs> okay. And Beauvoir was really outspoken about her support of abortion or the right to choose, and she really emphasized the stupidity of forcing a woman to have a baby that she doesn't want. And related to this, she also had this really quite revolutionary idea that there's no such thing as a maternal instinct. She argues that there's this socialization that occurs that molds women to have this maternal instinct and to choose motherhood. And a lot of people have confused this idea of Beauvoir's with her not supporting motherhood, which is wrong. Because um, And Beauvoir says herself, I'm, I simply asked that women choose maternity and love truthfully and freely, whereas they often use them as excuses and take refuge in them, only to find themselves imprisoned in that refuge when those emotions have dried up in their heart. And second wave feminists extended this idea and talked a lot about how motherhood is something that has historically been defined by and for patriarchy, which kind of drives its illegitimate or patriarchy's illegitimacy uh, home for these feminists. And before I never had any children herself again, and she didn't, she was never married, but uh, it wasn't because she disagreed with love or motherhood. It was because it just simply wasn't for her. And she died of pneumonia on the 14th of April after Sartre um, had died years before and that was it i found a lot of interesting stuff on um what's going on right now with with feminist philosophers okay so you know hannah arendt and beauvoir both insisted they weren't philosophers which kind of 
begs the question of what a philosopher is. And when I was doing research, I found that there's actually, it's actually a really hot topic right now within the field of philosophy. And there's been kind of a flurry in recent history of feminist philosophers who've started to really question and reformulate the whole canon of Western philosophy to include female philosophers. Um, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy um, wrote on the subject that feminist philosophers are faced with tradition that believes that there are no women philosophers, and if they are, they're unimportant. So these women um, feminist philosophers now are kind of doing, they're going back in the canon to basically include women philosophers within the history of philosophy. So they're doing a lot of work in the, the history of philosophy. So when you take a history of philosophy course, right, um, women aren't included because they're not part, they're not technically, they're not, according to the history of philosopher, ever considered philosophers. So there, um, oh, there's this one book by um, Mary Ellen Waith, and it's called, um, it's called The History of Women Philosophers. And she, it's, it, it includes Mary Wollstonecraft, Beauvoir, Arendt. Um, she gets a total of 16, I think, yeah, 16 philosophers in this book that she's found, that she's documented, that have never been documented in a history of philosophy course or anything. They don't teach these women. They're not considered to be... Yeah, they don't. No. No. And and so the feminist philosophers are going back and they are questioning the whole canon of Western philosophy and really asking... Because philosophy, historically, has... Part of the definition of a philosopher has been, must be a man, basically... That's what we can, um, you know, deduce from all this. And even though um, women can't be philosophers, right, um, of course, this doesn't mean that men have abstained from commenting on just who and what women are capable, especially regarding their abilities to do philosophy. Like Kant, a German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, Kant, sorry, thought that women were incapable of being artists, geniuses, or philosophers. And, all right, I don't want to demonize all the male philosophers. Because don't get me wrong, they were they had tons of brilliant ideas, but they also had some duds, like, um, <laughs> regarding women especially. So Kant's idea had an idea that a woman is better off dying fighting off a rape attack than submitting to being raped. Because... <laughs> If you fail to fight off a rape attack, then you have to live with the shame of being raped, and that is worse than dying. Wait, wait, which one is this? Kant. Emmanuel Kant. Yes. Yeah, Aristotle. Well. Yeah, Aristotle thought that women were just deformed men. Actually, <laughs> technically, the other way around, everyone's a woman until like the tenth week. Exactly, but so there are a lot of really interesting, and these, and what's going on right now is these feminist philosophers are kind of just sifting through all of these, the history of philosophy, kind of digging this out, and they're kind of just trying to re-inject, to to kind of similar, I guess, to what we're doing here, to to say, ah, women have been doing philosophy all this time, we just haven't been learning about them, because the men have been teaching philosophy. So, which could explain why Hannah Arendt and Beauvoir both said, oh, we're not philosophers, because technically they weren't, you know. I because think Hannah Arendt was just a mis- misanthrope in general. <laughs> yeah. Whenever anyone told her she was something, she was like, I don't even consider myself a professional thinker. It's like, really? Because you think about stuff, and then you write it down, and people read it, and pay to read it, and consider your ideas. I would yeah. maybe call that a professional thinker. Oh, well, and this is and this is what most this is what all women philosophers basically do because being a the te- the definition of a philosopher seems to require a penis. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I, don't I wouldn't know. put Hannah Arendt in that category just because it seems like she tried extremely hard to never have 
other than to not be called a philosopher, she would also never want anyone to call her, like, a woman philosopher. She seemed to consider, like, and this obviously is one of the many things that got her some controversy in her later years, but, like, she considered any kind of, like, identity politics type rebellions or revolutions to be too abstract and just missing the entire point. Mm-hmm. Which is probably where her Beauvoir uh, would disagree. Oh, very much. <laughs> a really good quote by this Mary Ellen Waith is that, um, ah, she writes, of, so it's, uh, she writes about the women in her book, like Wollstonecraft and everyone. These women are not women on the fringes of philosophy, but philosophers on the fringes of history. Yeah, which I thought summed it up pretty well. have actually met. When? I could pinpoint it as being sometime in New York, but I gotta tell you, uh, you're not gonna like it. Oh, wait, why? Uh, one of the sources I found said that Hannah had commented to one of her friends who was a little bit disconcerted upon meeting Simone de Beauvoir. He didn't really, she wasn't exactly how he pictured him, and Hannah said to him, that's because you talk to her like a thinker instead of a woman. She just wants you to flirt with her. Ouch. I know, kind of a bit bitchy. But that kind of shows you that they were uh, two very different people. Although, actually, they had a lot of this. They had some similar ideas. But yeah, uh, Hannah Arendt, just, I'll just dive in here. Uh, she was born to a Jewish family in 1906, and she lived her early life in Konigsberg and Hanover, Germany. Her father died early in her life of syphilis, and she had a stepfather and sister that she just couldn't stand, so she ended up mostly being raised by her grandparents in her early life, though she stayed close to her mom. Uh, she went up to university at Marburg and studied philosophy there, and over there she became involved with one of her professors. <laughs> I know. Tisk tisk. The already much respected Martin Heidegger. They met in 1924 when she was 18 and he was 35 and married with children. Ooh. Yeah. Though their romantic affair lasted only a few years, they remained connected the rest of her life with her basically admitting that his work had a huge influence on a lot of her books, most especially The Human Condition, which is the one where she is more involved with philosophy. And he admitted that she had influenced his first major work, Being in Time. Uh, it was begun the same time as their love affair, although he did say this when he was fighting with his wife after he and Hannah had resumed their friendship after the Second World War. And imagine his wife was a little bit peeved about it. Did they get divorced? No. Of course not. But Hannah and Heidegger's love affair was kind of short-lived. It was already on the rocks when she transferred to this other school to avoid suspicion about them. She started her dissertation work under another philosopher, Carl Jaspers, who's also quite well-known in his own right. 
Um, she did her thesis on the concept of love under St. Augustine. While Heidegger and Hannah were separated, he got appointed rector at Freiburg and then wrote her a letter in 1928 that just cut it off dead. It basically was like, nope, I'm too important right now. I can't risk it. Sorry. Damn. Yeah, that's cool. She married one of her fellow students, kind of a little bit, not that far after. They'd met at a New Year's Eve party shortly after she'd been dumped and got married that September. This was Gunter Stern, who was even one of Heidegger's former students, although I'm not really sure how much he knew at the time about how involved Hanna and Heidegger had been. She maintained a friendship with Heidegger all this time, but their last exchange was in 1931. She wrote him asking asking him about all these rumors she'd been hearing that he was using his position to commit anti-Semitic actions. And he wrote her back this really peeved, like, bitchy ex, ex-boyfriend type letter, basically just saying, I guess you'll believe anything you hear about me, and... How dare you accuse me of anti-Semitic? Don't you forget that you're Jewish and I was in love with you and all that. Mm -hmm. And it was all horseshit. (laughs) He'd been writing letters and commentary for a couple of years then, complaining about the Judaization... Crappy word. Judaization of Germany's education system. And then he joined the Nazi party. (laughs) (laughs) And Hannah and her husband decided to pull up stakes and get out of there. Uh, They lived in Berlin for a bit. Their apartment was a way station for fugitives trying to get out of Europe. Hannah researched at this point and wrote a biography of Rahel Varnhagen, who was this Jewish intellectual from centuries ago. And she felt a real affinity with this woman, being as she was also a female Jewish intellectual from Germany. It was one of the more mushy things. I didn't get to read it, unfortunately. I'd really like to, but commentary about it says that she would write letters saying that she felt like this woman was this friend that she'd just never gotten a chance to meet. And she's not usually that mushy, so it was kind of heartwarming. So Hannah and Gunther wound up in Paris by about 1933. They got there separately. They were in the same apartment for a time and were both still involved in politics in the same intellectual circles. But at this point, they were basically just married in name only. It was an amicable split, though, and they didn't even bother to get divorced until 1937, in part because sometime in 1936, Hannah met, Hanna met a nice German gentleman named Heinrich Blücher. She was 29, he was 37. He was a Marxist philosopher and a poet, and this kind of pushed her to be more of a political philosopher, although she kind of pushed him to be a little bit more skeptical of Marxism. He Mm. wound up being kind of a respected intellectual in his own right, teaching in America also after they moved there, but he wasn't as good at writing as she was, so he mostly just you know, he didn't leave as big of a legacy just because he was mostly a teacher and didn't really leave many written documents of his thoughts. At this time, she worked with Youth Aliyah, which was this group that was attempting to get young Jewish refugees out of Europe and into Palestine. This is one of the um, parts in her life that she believed more in Zionism. But even then and often later, she expressed her doubts about how exactly the state of Israel could work. And she didn't think that one centered in Palestine would She thought it might lead to some problems. (laughs) Wow. Shocking. (laughs) Uh, Her and Heinrich got married in 1940, 
but then wound up in a French internment camp in Gers because they were, well, they were enemy aliens. Uh, he was a German in France, and she was a Jew. So, But fortunately, through friends they'd made in the intellectual community, including Hannah's ex-husband, Gunther, she, he, and her mother were able to flee to America in 1941. And over there, she established herself in the American intellectual community. She taught at several colleges, as well as writing commentary in newspapers. And actually, that was one of the, the neater things that she found when she was learning English over there, like slowly and getting more accustomed to the culture. She wrote a very perceptive thing. I'm totally paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, unfortunately. But she said the people of America were politically free, but socially enslaved, which I thought was kind of interesting way of looking at it. <laughs> Very, uh, what was that guy? Very, very de Tocqueville of her. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you say, but Tocqueville said that Americans were socially, well, he said families were, would be better or closer in America. But yeah, he said they didn't have any capacity for independent thought. Um, did she, was that what she, did, she was talking about? I, yeah, I think, well, she didn't necessarily think that they didn't have capacity for independent thought, but she thought that there was all this, political potential available to them with the constitution but that a lot of the times they still stifled themselves from acting too much or becoming too involved because of social worries oh yeah 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 that's what yeah Tocqueville has this really great line where he says <laughs> I've never heard um like an original American conversation like a where, where where people have their own thoughts. <laughs> yeah, and aren't just, like, being polite and kind of... <laughs> yeah, but he was some weirdo Frenchman, come on. Like, they were going to let themselves loose around him. <laughs> but so, even though she was becoming more established in America, the experience of being in the camp and losing all her rights and becoming stateless was influencing her later work especially after in 1950 after she'd been made a naturalized citizen in the u.s she was able to return to germany after the war and she was horrified at the lack of reflection that she saw there amidst the people she kind of felt like they weren't seriously thinking about what had happened like they were trying to put it behind them which i guess is understandable but they also didn't seem to be asking themselves too many questions about how it had happened in the first place and although while she was thinking this and this was going to end up having a deep effect on her legacy, she renewed her friendship with Martin Heidegger. Oh, silky silky now. <laughs> Just the ex, man. I guess she can't help herself. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so they met up and he started protesting to her that the Nazi accusations that had been made about him were just slander. And even though she'd written some harsh things about him already, she made, it seems like at this point she made the decision to defend him. For the rest of her life, when she'd write about him or his legacy, she would downplay these Nazi years of his as an error and something that had been exaggerated. And I just want to stress here that it's not like he um, ever publicly apologized or publicly repented what had happened. He just kind of, mm -hmm. yeah. But you do kind of see in her work every once in a while when she's talking about how totalitarianism can appeal to intellectuals sometimes or creative people. I kind of feel like in the back of her head, she was just screaming, like you, you asshole, Martin. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
But yeah, this would impact thoughts on her work later when she started writing extensively on judgment and responsibility in the wake of her work on the Eichmann trial. Uh, more on that later, because the work that kind of established her as a political philosopher for people to really take seriously came out in 1951, which was this very well-regarded, exhaustive work called Origins of Totalitarianism. It's still pretty much considered required reading for anyone interested in explaining the rise of Nazism and Stalinism. And I, I really liked it, um, which sounds like an odd thing to say, <laughs> but it's just kind of extraordinary in how it's written. It doesn't read as this emotionless academic book, but it also doesn't read as this overwrought judgment from on high type polemic. It mm -hmm. reads like you can feel her just trying to understand and explain this horrible, unexplainable event, like just the astonishing methodical cruelty that Stalin and the Nazis were capable of, which doesn't seem like it's anything that can be explained. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess she must have seen that as a cop out because it seems like she was staring it in the face and just trying not to flinch. You know, mm -hmm. it's divided into three sections anti-Semitism, imperialism, and totalitarianism, being as she felt like the, you know, the first two kind of snowballed into the third one. Her first section was the first conceived of the book, and you can actually kind of tell that because it, it, it reads at first as being this independent thing. Um, she'd started thinking about writing this back when she was in France, even, like before she wound up in the camp. <laughs> Um, she traces the growth of anti-Semitism as this secular ideology rather than a conflict between religions, that it stopped being about, uh, for, that for Christians, it stopped being about we are Christian and they're Jewish and they're bad because they're not our religion. And it kind of turned into a cultural thing instead. Uh, the Jews throughout most of their history were this stateless group that was spread across Europe. And as some countries began to give them more political rights, their social rights took a hit as other groups began to use them as a scapegoat, wondering why, you know, as serfs or as um, some other sect of Christianity or even as some less well-regarded ethnic group, they weren't getting the same rights. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the Jews within their own group began constructing anti-Semitism as an ideology that they'd been victims of using the same sort of selective historiography as groups outside of them were using to construct a worldview where there was this secret society of Jews that was ruling the world and you should be scared and you should be angry. And uh, there was one point where uh, she kind of cheekily was like, no one would have been more surprised than the Jews to find out that they were ruling the world because it sure didn't feel like it from where they were sitting. <laughs> You know, but her se the second section of this book is imperialism. Arendt, who had clearly read herself some Rosa Luxemburg, who you might know as a favorite of Lenin's, and who apparently also Hannah's mother was a fan of. She Hannah discusses how imperialism aided the collapse of the nation state and gifted the later totalitarian movements with the expansionist tendencies that became keys to their practices. She basically said, and she's not the first one to say this, obviously, that the bourgeoisie had found that the nation state placed limits on their capitalist expansion. Mm -hmm. And this was unacceptable to them. They were running out of market space, so they used the state's capacity for violence to expand into other countries. 
and it became a political necessity at this point to speak in race-based ideology to gain support for these ventures into other states, like to get support from other classes who might not really understand what they had to gain from this. Mm -hmm. It gave them something that they were that these other people were not, and it gave them something that they were better just because of what they were that these other people were not. Mm -hmm. And dehumanization uh, also aided the bureaucracy that was necessary to be involved in colonizing another country. It turns people into numbers, and if some of these people are people that you already don't regard as human, then the numbers make even less of an impact on you. And if you're making these decisions with a pen stroke from hundreds or thousands of miles away, then it's easier for you to not regard your actions as something that have, might have moral weight to someone else. Um, also, at the same time, Hanna spoke of the tribal nationalism that was springing up in Central and Eastern Europe, that several different nationalist groups saw themselves as a small collective of people that was surrounded by their enemies. This, all in all, added up to a really bad climate for anyone who was thought of as these enemies. <laughs> and at the end of World mm. War I, these many different threads came together. Post-war treaties drew up arbitrary boundaries that further weakened nation-states, and large populations were left stateless by these boundaries and deprived of their political rights. Police formed the only force that controlled and governed these people now that they didn't necessarily believe in their governments, and Jews were among these stateless people. And in part three of the book, which is about totalitarianism, she describes the creation and facets of this she didn't even seem to call it ideology by the end of it, but this all-encompassing state that a government can get into. And it took the expansionist and bureaucratic tendencies generated by imperialism, as well as its race-based ideology, and rising anti-Semitism was right there to give it a banner to get behind. Mm. There are parts of it that she's clearly talking more about Nazism than Stalinism, but she definitely levels a lot of these accusations at both of them. When she describes it as just a system with an aim of organizing people into masses instead of classes. Don't, not letting people having any other thing that connects them to each other except for connecting them to the state. There would be these purges that were constructed in such a way that when someone was accused, their friends became their enemies because of fear of this guilt by association. They would just fall all over themselves to prove that their friendship was just a pretext on pretext to spy on this person, that their only true loyalty was the state, and all other ties would be cut. She put it as, it is not totalitarianism's goal to rule by external means, by threat of violence, but it is a way of dominating and terrorizing humans from within. And mm -hmm. she felt like after World War One these generations were disillusioned and disgusted with the culture that they saw around them. They didn't see it as relating to them at all, and they wanted something to lose themselves in. And she thought that a man like Hitler was designed for someone like this. Mm. And it just creeps into your thoughts, creeps into how you see the entire world. Propaganda isn't even necessarily designed for you anymore. You know, it's just designed for the other people looking in because you've already internalized it. People just learn not to look at facts or what they see in front of them, but turn inward to their imagination, where they've internalized this worldview. And at some point, the ideology usually devotes itself to having as little concrete platforms as possible. Because if you give people any facts that you tell them to believe in, 
they can be proven wrong one way or the other, and then where will you be? So it just teaches people a completely different way to look at everything. She talks a lot about the idea of consistency. Like, common sense to someone outside of one of these states would look at the fact that every confessed traitor to the regime has the same motives and pretty much the same phrasing in their confessions that they give, you know, in a closed court, probably with half of their toenails torn out. The fact (laughs) that these things are all so very similar is a reason that they're not true. But within the government, consistency is the most convincing argument. You know, to other people, this similarity is proof that it is true. Because if everything keeps on happening the same way, then that must mean that everything they've been told is true, Uh which is creepy as hell. And she thought that because of its expansionist tendencies, uh, true totalitarian societies can only arise in large countries because they have the greatest monopoly in what people see. Consistency means truth. So the more the world that you can control and make consistent with the world as you state it is, the more truth you will speak. You know, if Stalin wants to say that Moscow has the only advanced subway system in the world... You just make sure that people can't get to any of those other subway systems. But ideally, you get into those subway systems and shut it down, (laughs) is one of her examples. Which is kind of an interesting problem now, I think, because, I mean, it's like all of these protests are going on and so many people are like, we have the Internet, idiots. (laughs) I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the things that happened in Egypt was they, when the first uprising happened, that they shut down the Internet. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just changing the dynamics. It's exciting. Yeah, I mean, China still tries to block the Internet, but I'm sure that people find a way to get around it because Mm -hmm. that's kind of one of the beauties of it. I don't know. When the WikiLeaks thing happened, a party was like, yes, every 80s movie is happening right now. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I definitely do have my nerd out moments reading this where I'm just like, oh, my God, what would Hunter Arendt think of Twitter? Um, (laughs) But basically, back to some darkness. One of her interesting quotes on this is the force possessed by totalitarian propaganda before the movements have the power to drop iron curtains to prevent anyone's disturbing by the slightest reality, the gruesome quiet of an entirely imaginary world lies in its ability to shut the masses off from the real world, which, yeah, agreed, probably was a lot easier back then. (laughs) Now, Mm -hmm. it would be a little bit more difficult. Well, Mm -hmm. until you get it. (laughs) But she felt like things like the gulag and the concentration camps were just the purest concentration of totalitarianism, where just all thought and human qualities were attempted to be removed from people, and they would just become this mass instead of having any other kind of affiliations. But yeah, so it was. it's a very authoritative work, and I just want you to listen to I also really love this bit from the preface. Well, not love, because the fact that it's written 60 years ago, and it still kind of gives me chills. Love's the wrong word. We can no longer afford to take that which was good in the past and simply call it our heritage. To discard the bad and simply think of it as a dead load, which by itself time will bury in oblivion. The subterranean stream of Western history has finally come to the surface and usurped the dignity of our tradition. This is the reality in which we live, and this is why all efforts to escape from the grimness of the present into nostalgia for a still intact past or into the anticipated oblivion for a better future are vain. But she she also, like, she felt it was always naive when people would treat history like this 
line. Like, she was terribly suspicious of anyone that tried to explain history with one pat explanation. That, yeah. And I agree with that. From the more grounded historical context of origins of totalitarianism, she reached back towards Greek and Roman philosophers, uh, which was certainly influenced by her years with Heidegger, studying with him. She wrote one of her key philosophical texts, The Human Condition. This is chiefly about people's lives and how they relate to each other, how they relate to their work. And it's mostly about what she calls Vita Activa. Like their Vita Activa. Life. Vita Activa. Uh, she saw it as being composed of three things. Labor, which is something that someone does purely to sustain themselves, just as a biological creature, you know, obtaining shelter, food, all that, either through currency or building your house, whatever. Uh, work, which is what something, what one does to maintain humanity as the status quo. Things that you do because you're human, not because you're a biological creature. And to her, neither of these things are ends in themselves, but there's also action, which is someone making moves to make themselves heard, give themselves an identity, change the world, all those things. And action to her is an end in itself. Action is freedom and freedom is action. And just to try to make a distinction, I'll just throw an example out there. Let's say you're a scientist that's working on a cure for multiple sclerosis. The labor is basically the fact that you gain money from this, that you use to feed and clothe and house yourself. And the work is you're trying to make a society that is more illness-free so people can continue to exist. And the action is basically that you're trying to improve the world and... Just anything about how what you do is related to how you individually would be able to do it. Action is how you proclaim that you are yourself hmm. um, and an individual. And it can't be done in a vacuum. It's intended as a public action. And it relies on the plurality of men to have an impact. Because if someone is proclaiming themselves an individual, it could only have importance because everyone else is an individual too and will have their own actions to respond to it. She was worried about how in the increasingly mechanized world, action was becoming harder. But to her, it was the most important part of the equation that was keeping us from being just animals or cogs in a machine. And for her, it was necessary for there to be a polis, which was a public sphere where actions can come about. From this can arise power, which isn't to be confused with strength or force or violence. To her, strength is wielded by an individual. Force is a natural phenomenon and independent of humans, and violence is just a pale substitute for power. On her later writings on violence, she writes that it's evident when a state is losing its power or when a revolutionary group doesn't have power yet because of how much violence they use. Because the more power you have, the less violence that you have to use. And in this work, she disagrees with Hegel and Marx. To her, history isn't a process or subject to any ideological interpretation, but it's the result of actions that are offshoots of each other, each action creating new beginnings and new worlds, which kind of sounds optimistic, but obviously over the course of her life, she'd already seen these beginnings weren't always all that pretty. Um, her next work was called On Revolution, and it was a comparative analysis of the American and French revolutions. And she ended up finding them both lacking, with the American one coming closer, but still failing short in the area of providing the average citizen a voice and the ability to participate in the government more fully other than voting. But the work that would throw her into controversy for the rest of her life, as well as focus her thinking, we go to her New Yorker coverage of the Adolf Eichmann trial and hanging, later published as Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. 
Uh-oh. A little background here. Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi who was put forth and, yeah, probably was, the bureaucrat behind the mass expulsion of the Jews and the eventual deportations to concentration camps, which led to millions of deaths. After the war, he fled to Argentina, where he lived under a false identity until he was captured by Israeli commandos in 1960. From there, he was put on trial in Jerusalem. Rather than an international tribunal, which Hanna, among others, wasn't all that happy with, but for his crimes committed as a Nazi, he was convicted and executed by hanging in 1962. Mm-hmm. Hanna's coverage of this trial didn't win her a lot of friends. She had a lot to say about it. <laughs> she criticized the idea of having the trial in Israel rather than an international court because she believed his actions were crimes against humanity, and it was damaging to portray it simply as a crime against the Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, she refused to paint him as a complete monster, and it's she wasn't the only reporter in there that was commenting extensively and with a great amount of shuddering at how utterly normal he acted. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also remarked in the book about how sometimes Eichmann got his lists of deportation from the Jewish community leaders. And in the book, she made it sound more common, but later historians would agree that it really wasn't as common as she made it out to be. And when she wrote about it, she portrayed it as this selfish act that those with influence were giving up the lives of those that followed and trusted them to save their own skins and those of a few dozen others. And she didn't, and rather than how a lot of people see it, which is just people got left with utterly fucking awful choices by the Nazis, you know? And Mm -hmm. A lot of people are puzzled as to why she put this into it, since it isn't really essential to her argument, and she must have known that it would have pissed a lot of people off. But she was on her rent, so she didn't give a shit, and she put it in there anyway. Well, if you're searching for to get a, the, a truth or something, then, I don't know, fuck pissing people off. <laughs> yeah, and, like, she... I mean, when she was writing about it, too, she was writing about how the the defense tried to use this as an argument and she never credited it as it actually being any kind of good argument for why Eichmann wasn't responsible for his actions. Um, (laughs) She just put it in there as just being like, you know what, let's not pretend that there weren't a lot of people doing shitty things back then. But the real kicker for a lot of people was the phrase that appears in the title, which comes from when she's describing Eichmann's cliche-ridden speech right before his execution. She says, It was as though in those last few minutes he was summing up the lesson that this long course in human wickedness had taught us. The lesson of the fearsome, Word and thought defying banality of evil. Like, he was toasting his guards, he was wishing them long life, and just completely not acting as a man who's about to die, who in any way has any remorse for his crimes, or doesn't have remorse for his crimes and feels any kind of justification. She referred to him multiple times as a clown. (laughs) But what she meant by that phrase, the banality of evil, was debated by many others and pondered over much by her, even though at the time she refused to come up with some kind of brief summation of it. Throughout the book, she muses a lot on Eichmann's seeming inability to think. She was disputing... Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. And she doesn't mean, like, physically, like he was mentally disabled. She just means that it didn't seem that the evil that he'd done had come from deliberate thought, but the lack of it. Uh Uh-huh. She would tell the story about how in his interrogations 
by Jewish policemen, some of whom probably had relatives who died in the camps. He would tell them his story like it was this hard luck tale, like he was talking to people <laughs> with a viewpoint like his own, just bitching about how he hadn't gotten his promotion, you know? <laughs> Which is just appalling. Like, she thought that his total lack of empathy had more to do with his actions than anything, which to her was almost as, was a bigger evil than deliberate hatred. Just the utter inability to see things from someone else's point of view. Mm -hmm. The all voices around him of anyone who he wanted to please saw no wrong in his actions. So he didn't try to employ any kind of independent moral judgment, perhaps by looking, trying to look at it from someone else's viewpoint to really give thought to what it was he was doing. To her, thinking is creating an inner dialogue, what Plato called the argument between me and myself, and it was crucial to having a conscience and making decisions and judging. Eichmann completely lacked that. There was only one voice in his head, and it was already in agreement with what was happening around him. Hmm. And a lot of people took what she wrote and twisted it into this Eichmann and everyone theory, that if you were put in a situation in, into a time that the Nazis had created, then you will inevitably do horrible things. You become a cog in a machine. And she, she didn't hold what? to that. She also refused to play into calling him some kind of moralist monster. And because she thought that both were removing his culpability, and that was the last thing that she had in mind for him. Mm -hmm. She compared it to the idea of putting someone on trial for theft and presenting the typical percentage of thefts in the area and saying, well, your honor, you see that he falls into the typical percentage of, I mean, the typical demographic of the people that commit the usual amount of crimes for this area. Therefore, he's not responsible. And she, mm -hmm. That was bullshit. You know that I, you know, I, I came across some articles where uh, a lot of people have pondered whether um, Arendt was a secret existentialist. Well, that was one of the titles. I don't know. How... <laughs> I saw that one. <laughs> Maybe that's like a voice in her head that mm -hmm. never had a chance to come in i don't know but she, was, she didn't want to yeah. be any kind of is because she was a total yeah. misanthrope <laughs> but she does share this idea of no 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 you are responsible for creating an inner dialogue <laughs> and you're not just put into a situation and therefore become whatever that situation is that's insane no totally and that's why i'm kind of surprised that they didn't like each other because they did at least seem to have that in common you know that but up to just petty female bullshit i was watching D dylan morin's new uh comedy routine he, he's like he's like he's like he's like feminism might work if for five minutes you'd stop fucking complaining about each other <laughs> maybe in another life if they weren't french and german they would have liked each other more <laughs> yeah Maybe. Point being, when even when she wrote the phrase the banality of evil, it wasn't a closed closed argument to her. She thought that what she'd written on the trial was a lesson, neither an explanation of the phenomenon nor a theory about it. And it seems like she was picking this idea these ideas over for the rest of her life. Um she wondered what it was about those that had made the decision not to go along with the crowd and paid with dire consequences often their lives and often without any kind of tangible benefit to themselves or anyone else. And she wondered how they were wired that had made them different. 
But it's not like there was any shortage of things to be writing about in the 60s that weren't a little bit more current. <laughs> She continued teaching and she continued writing. Obviously, considering her experiences, she was very anti-communist, but she was also very against the war in Vietnam. Um, hmm? What city was she living in at this time? Oh, a lot of different ones. She was teaching at Stanford. She was teaching at Princeton. Um, she might have... Her husband was teaching at Bard for a while as well. So she was just moving all around. I think she spoke at Harvard a couple of times. She wrote this really awesome article that was later included in her work, Crises in the Republic, called Reflections on Violence, where she says, since the end of human action, in contrast with the products of fabrication, can never be reliably predicted, the means used to achieve political goals are more often than not of greater relevance to the future world than the intended goals. Uh, she wasn't really happy with some of the new left's Maoist rhetoric. You know, all the power comes from the barrel of the gun, like romanticizing of rebels and revolutionary. Mm -hmm. She thought that was nonsense. Mm. And she was kind of a bitch about it. She was so catty in this thing. Like, she was quoting, um, she made fun of Sartin in a couple of times, but I can't remember exactly what the contest was. But she was quoting Fanon as saying, like, it was better to have an empty belly then be fed by the rich. And she's just like, well, you know, anyone with the slightest knowledge of biological processes will know that that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> she reminds me of Christopher Hitchens and that she could be a completely unforgiving bitch when she thought you were being stupid. <laughs> and yes, I did just call Christopher Hitchens an unforgiving bitch. If not saying I don't like the guy, though. She makes a firm distinction in this between violence and power. Power to her is what brings about change, and when it's institutionalized, it becomes the government. Violence to her is employed, it's employed as means, but it always needs justification, and there's always been such a disparity between the kind of violence that the state can bring to bear to defend itself and what people with a grievance can bring to bear against it, that any revolutionary group, if they do win power, it's not because they used violence to overpower them, and they should never mistake you know, the fact that they got a couple of black market AK-47s as being any kind of substitute for having genuine power, you know, the genuine support of other people that have grievance against the state. Mm -hmm. um, and to her, it goes the other way around. Like, government governments will resort to violence when they think they're losing their power, but when they have a huge amount of power, they don't really need to. <laughs> um, people resort to violence when they feel rage, which is when people feel that the government has the power to fix the conditions of the world, but doesn't. And so, you know, they're not going to get mad at a hurricane. They're not going to, but they will get mad, say, when there's no evacuation plan for it. As long as this rage is expressed after, uh, towards people who are actually at fault rather than a scapegoat, then it's possible for there to be a revolution. And But it will be the result of the people's combined power not of their aptitude for violence. To her, when violence gains the seat of power, then doesn't abdicate, then you wind up with Stalinist Russia. But yeah, she was at odds with some of the 60s movements, including kind of controversially, she didn't... She wrote this essay about Little Rock where she wrote about how she felt that the public education system wasn't necessarily the proper stage for grievances about racism to be brought up. She felt like governments can should enforce political and legal equality, but trying to use their power to bring about social inequality would set um, minorities' causes back. But then later, when it got published, she admitted that she didn't, 
she backpedals a little bit and she's like, sorry, I didn't get the importance of education to American life. And she, <laughs> I know, seriously, like, really? You don't? And she also said that she, she hadn't been to the South of herself because she thought it would be unbearable. So maybe she wasn't, didn't have the correct <laughs> summation of the situation. <laughs> but it kind of shows the fact that she kind of refused to consider what one group or another would think about what she wrote before she wrote it. Like, she refused to have an ideology first and put a set of facts and beliefs, just shove it into that ideology later. Mm -hmm. Awesome interviewer read, said, she commented on this saying, you know, the left think I am a conservative and the conservatives think I am left or I am a maverick or God knows what. And I must say that I couldn't care less. I don't think the real questions of the century get any kind of illumination by this kind of thing. And I think that this speaks to this overall suspicion of ideologies that she had. Not surprisingly, mm -hmm. I don't know if she really didn't hold any ideologies or nationalist feelings, but also from uh, Origins of Tal Totalitarianism, she wrote, Caution and handling generally accepted opinions that claim to explain whole trends of history is especially important for the historian of modern times, because the last century has produced an abundance of ideologies that pretend to be keys to history, but are actually nothing but desperate attempts to escape responsibility. Mm -hmm. I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> Well, especially when you're doing um, uh, when you're doing an analysis or doing philosophy, I think uh, a lot of times I, I think people just create these philosophical systems and they're so obsessed with not. Of course, it, you shouldn't go around contradicting yourself all the time. But if you need to contradict yourself in, in, in the search of the truth um, and that's what you're trying to do, then fuck the system. Well, no, I mean, like, it's nice to have a framework for um, for some kind of moral guidance, but I think she was still very individualistic about it, and she felt more strongly that one should consider what's in front of them and mm -hmm. how their actions would impact things rather than whether their actions were ideologically proper, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. As she continued writing, it seems like she was still mulling over the questions raised in her mind by the Eichmann trial about why it was that in dark times, some would become Eichmann's, some would object and a lot would just go along. And she wanted to, really consider how responsibility was to be divided, how were people to be judged, and how people could employ their own judgments and consciences to figure out the best moral path in such situations. Um, she said in one of her writings, when she was thinking about this, uh, the trouble with making the choice between the lesser of two evils is that after one makes a choice, one forgets that one has still chosen evil. These thoughts informed her writings after this. Um, she was working on a book called The Life of the Mind, which two of the sections of it, Responsibility and Judgment, were composed. The, la the later one was still unfinished at the time of her death. She was exploring the concept of thinking in relation to the fact that she judged Eichmann as thoughtless. And she felt like when you understand or you know something, you have an answer, you know, you've gotten your hands on something that you just know is completely true. But that means to her that you're not thinking. Because when you're thinking, you're asking questions, you're looking for mm -hmm. a meaning instead of a truth. And she thought that this was intrinsic to exercising political responsibilities. Unlike a lot of other philosophers, she didn't think of opinions as being unformed truth. 
she thought of them as being necessary to politics because, you know, they created debate, they created conversation, they created people thinking outside their own point of view. Hopefully. (laughs) She felt that since every moral in the Western tradition had still led to two world wars and attempted genocide, tradition could no longer be the only framework for judgment. (laughs) And as she put it, people should start thinking without a banister. She put more stock in what she called reflective judgment or an enlarged mentality that took other people's viewpoints into account into the shapings of opinions and thus your debate and thus hopefully a productive political process. But it wasn't a fully shaped theory. It was still in manuscript form and it's kind of been pieced together from these manuscripts and her lectures from before her death. And unfortunately, um, her continued relationship with Heidegger, some some of which has come out um, after her death with their letters and after his death with some really um, objectionable things that people have found, you know, in his papers uh, relating to his Nazi years. People have used that in order to question her theories on judgment. Um, because, to her, because to them, it would be one thing if she just tried to separate the man from his ideas, but she defended both him and his ideas and downplayed his Nazi affiliations rather than accepting them and separating them from his other ideas. Um, she was, you know... As you might have noticed, not exactly overwhelming with tact. She didn't prevaricate. Like, she kept her line, and even though it was, like, a human decision, completely human to someone that you'd been admiring for much of your life, much of your thinking, intellectual life, um, even if they'd made some questionable decisions, to still not write them off. And, but in any case, she's still a very respected theorist. Her last work was Responsibility and Judgment, and it was still unfinished at the time that she died in 1975 of a heart attack. And yeah, she's left a legacy, very much considered in political dialogues. There's even a Hannah Arendt Center for politics, which hosts lots of conferences at Bard College. She covered a lot of ground that people don't usually think of in connection with women and philosophy. Mm -hmm. And she was clearly a very sharp mind, and she was clearly a very independent thinker. And quite influential. Certainly. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Dame is a Four-Letter Word. I'm LP. And I'm Lindsay. Join us next time for Hang on, I just gotta take off my hoodie. I'm getting overheated with all this philosophy. <laughs>